You are listening to the Indiana Deer News Podcast, your number one podcast for all things related to the wild deer herd in Indiana. On this episode, we have Joe Caudell, the Indiana deer biologist, back on for another episode to talk about anything and everything from 2021 season to looking forward to the 2022 and a whole bunch in between. Sit tight and stay tuned to this episode of the Indiana Deer News Podcast. Hey guys, really briefly before we get this interview started with Joe, and I'm not going to take too much of your time. First, I just wanted to thank you for checking out the podcast. And the second thing is a little bit of housekeeping. I kind of forewarned you guys. I'm cutting back on some money um, as far as what's expenditures to the podcast and such. So the custom URL, indianadeernews.com, is temporarily on hold. Um, at least for now. So if you go to the Facebook page, you can find the link there. It's a free um, Wix uh, page link there. Uh, it's a little too long to say on air, but you can still access the website. It still has everything that you can uh, access the, the podcast. And if I ever end up putting up any blog posts or articles shared or things of that nature, um, or I know some of you listen to the podcast via the website, uh, you can still do so. It's just you're going to have to save a different uh, .com now than previous. So without further ado, that's all I got for you right now. I want to thank Joe before this interview starts again for coming on the podcast. It means a lot to myself and to all those out there that he's willing to sit down and talk. It's been a blessing to have him and then Mariah and then now back to Joe again. So we talk about a lot of different things on this episode of the podcast. I think you're going to find it all interesting. We're going to reflect on the 2021 season. We're going to discuss the proposals, which uh, Mariah and I kind of detailed, uh, walked through in past episodes. We're going to kind of touch on the integrated deer study, which we've also had somebody on as well. CWD status update, after hunt surveys are going to get talked about a lot, and then we're proactively going to look into the future. That and a lot more on this episode and this interview with Joe on the Indiana Deer News podcast. Let's get that interview started right now. All right, we are back for this episode of the Indiana Deer News podcast. I'm your host, Ty Miller, and we are blessed again to have Joe Caudell back. He was actually the guest on episode six. And this will be the fourth time we've sat down and kind of chatted deer with our deer biologist. Second time with Joe. We've been here twice with Mariah. And uh, Joe, welcome to the podcast again. Yeah, it's good to be back. Yeah, it's been a while. So uh, for those who maybe don't know, I mean, I, we've, we've discussed it on the uh, podcast again, but how long has it been now since you've been back in this role since Mariah left us? Oh, I think it was... Maybe August. I know it was right before deer season. Started. Right before deer, so yeah. I'm thinking uh, maybe could have been as early as July. Gotcha. So I know uh, we're excited to have you back. We love that it's kind of stayed in the family, if you will, and we loved your time when you were here with us. And I'm sure we'll we'll learn a lot from you today and moving forward. And we just appreciate you being willing to sit down and communicate with all the deer hunters out there that listen to the podcast. And uh, I guess we can start there since you took over right before last deer season. Let's just kind of chat and reflect on last year season um, as best as we can, knowing the data that you have before us now. What are some of your observations so far? Yeah, I mean, 
the biggest takeaway is that it was very similar to what we had in kind of 2018, 2019, 2019, 2020. So, you know, this was uh, pretty average if you look back at those years. And, you know, just in case folks are interested in what we're looking at, we're I'm actually using our online deer harvest data. That That's one of our uh, what we call our dashboards, our data dashboards that we've actually got up and available to the public. And so uh, that's the one that actually updates throughout the deer season. So if folks want to see how deer hunting is going in their county or, you know, or want to look at even, I know a lot of folks have an interest in like uh, crossbow versus bow and arrow uh, harvest, those types of things. I can all look at that right there. And, that, and honestly, that's just what I use because it's super convenient and it's just right there all the time. Yep, and I'll be sure in the show notes to link to the page that Joe's talking about for anybody who hasn't visited there before. I mean, you can see all the historical data. I'm looking at the years that are up right now. We have the 2015-16 season through last year, and only two of those years even broke 120. And, and like you said, it's really similar to the 17, 18, and 19 season where 113, 111, and 114,000 deer were harvested. Um, so we're right in that, kind of like that average for the past six, seven years. Yeah, and I, and I think if we hadn't have had COVID in 2020-21, that one would have probably been right in that average too. I mean, you know, we, we know during that period that a lot more people were out turkey hunting, a lot more people were out fishing, a lot more people were out deer hunting. And so I, I really think that blip at that point was, was really due to that. And so I think we're, you know, kind of hitting right in our, right in our average stride for, you know, the past five or six years. So when we look at the overall trends in that so has there really been anything that's sticking out to you i know you're kind of probably still knee deep in the data but there's no like red flags or things that are catching your guys's eyes on your end as far as trends or data no we were real happy to see uh the response after ehd and so um in, in general it takes at least you know this is what we think about two years to fully recover from uh, a severe EHD outbreak. Uh, in some places, it might take a little bit longer. In some places, a little bit shorter. But, you know, on average, is that kind of two- to three-year period. And so to see that our harvest numbers uh, stayed up, you know, we were able to make that response and, and drop that harvest down during the year it happened, which I think really helped. We didn't have to wait a year to try to address it. But, yeah, I mean, it seems like a fairly average year. And, and, you know, what we would expect from year to year is just to see some fluctuations. And, and that's all fairly normal. Speaking of that area, I know the EHD, that was actually a question. It ties in perfectly. I had somebody message the page on Facebook wanting to know any observations that you had had in the heart of where that EHD hit down south. So you're actually seeing how are those harvest trends working? Because now we're what? This was the third or second season since that EHD year. I'm trying to remember. Uh, I believe it would be the second season, like yeah. second full season. Of course, we had the one that was right you in know, it. kind of the tail end, but we're two seasons removed from it this summer. I think will be the third summer removed from it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting because 
when when deer are heavily predated upon, when they're heavily hunted, when they get hit hard by a, uh, an acute or just like really quick disease like EHD, they actually physically respond by having more uh, fawns or bringing more fawns to term that following year. That's actually a really interesting thing about deer physiology and behavior is, you know, they are a they are prey animals, and you know that's kind of their their role in in the ecosystem is you know to be a prey animal, and so the reason they're able to do that is they respond by actually having more offspring those um, you know following years or being able to bring in the term, and so you know that's why a lot of times we say that yep deer populations will recover relatively quickly after an EHD outbreak as long as we you know don't harvest them at the exact same level that we've been uh, harvesting them at. And so uh, even though it looks like, you know, harvest is up by having our quotas for the does down a little bit, that that's one of the things that just can help allow them to recover. But uh, it's, it's really fascinating to see that deer can actually recover from like these predation events or, you know, disease events and that kind of stuff uh, fairly rapidly. And I think I have a study saved that you might be speaking to, but those who are listening as well, there's a really interesting study about um, logging and fire and how they even will mm-hmm. re- they will even respond with the number of offsprings that their localized habitat can provide and nutrition levels. So in a clear-cut area, if a large forest fire happens that following year, you'll see more, more uh, twins and triplets thrown mm-hmm. than you would in years prior yep. because now there's enough nutrients and dense forage for those deer to survive. It, they're, it, they're amazing creatures and how they respond to stuff like that. Yep. No, that's, that's exactly right. And it's, a, it's that same principle. And in that case, you know, that, that is uh, increasing the quality of the habitat. And so they respond. And then, you know, when it comes to like EHD or some significant predator event, which, you know, typically not normal. I mean, that's fairly constant from year to year, or let's say, you know, a super high harvest Mm -hmm. that would lower the deer population relative to the amount of nutrients that are available. And so then because there's fewer deer and more nutrients, you know, relatively speaking, then yeah, they can, they can come back that following year and have, you know, like you were talking about more twins, more triplets and those kinds of things. So, really interesting. So that's good news for those listening that kind of live down in that heart of the area that got hit really hard. And I know I had a couple people reporting to me this year that, you know, they were very surprised and pleased with how, you know, the deer population may not be quite to what it was prior to that outbreak, but they, they, they're even seeing firsthand that things are coming back and that's a good sign. And it's encouraging that, you know, harvest trends seem to be indicating that as well on your guys' end. Yeah, and the, the other thing I wanted to mention about that while, while we're on it, the other interesting um, trend we're seeing, and, and this is primarily related to people actually reporting these uh, dead deer to us. So we have a website that uh, we can report sick and dead animals to, and we really started that when we started having that EHD outbreak, and, and hunters and other people were great about getting information to us through that online system and they kept doing it so the last couple of years they've been doing it and that helps us monitor for it but what we've noticed are little 
what I would almost call micro outbreaks that I think a lot of folks weren't even aware that were occurring. And so, you know, if you think about it, that disease, EHD, is out in the environment essentially all the time. You know, I mean, it's just it's just always there. It just doesn't always cause these large scale outbreaks. We're always going to have a deer or two die here and there. And, and that's what our data reflects. And so the, the, those reports, we're getting just like one or two per county, just kind of spread out through a lot of Indiana just throughout the year. And then we're also able to pick up on these small, like, you know, even just like a one square mile area within a county where somebody might call and report that, you know, over the last month, they found you know, 10 or 15 deer that have died. And again, very similar to EHD, like next to the water, those types of things. And so that's what we kind of think it is. But it is literally just in one small area of a single county. And so I think all along, you know, we've always had probably these little mini outbreaks, these little micro outbreaks. And, you know, and I've even had people tell me that, you know, in, you know, 2015, we had an outbreak here, and we're like, well, we didn't have a big outbreak that year. And what I think is going on is hunters and landowners are actually observing these little micro outbreaks, even though it's not happening all over the state. And, you know, and a lot of times that's what they're referring to. And, you know, they're telling me kind of in these off years when we haven't had these big outbreaks. And so that's been real fascinating. And, and I'm just so appreciative that folks are being observant and reporting that because it's that type of reporting and interaction that really helps us key in on these things to, you know, really manage the deer better. Yeah. And then do you think part of that too is some of these memories, you know, cause I hear tales about EHD outbreaks as well. Just the, it's so easy now to report to you guys, sick or dead animals. Whereas in before, maybe they weren't aware of the steps or the process, or it wasn't as just a couple clicks, um, do you think that might be a factor in it? Because it's become very easy to interact with you guys in just in the recent past half dozen years. Yeah, I, I think that has a lot to do with it. You know, I, I also think EHD is just becoming more common in yeah. this area. And there's a uh, a researcher down at the University of Georgia who has been, for her PhD, looking at EHD through the Midwest. And I think when she's done, she'll have some really interesting insight into what we've been seeing. And, and like one of the maps I saw that she produced for a presentation, you could see over the years how it's become more and more common in Indiana and other places uh, in the Midwest over the last several decades. And that's excellent. Do you by chance know the name or something that we can look up or is it kind of in the early stages to where... There wouldn't be much to yeah, read. Yeah, she's she is still real in, in the early stages. I actually reached out to her and asked her if she had any publications out, and she's still like collecting data. We just happened to see a very early presentation, really talking about what like some of her plans are and, and what she's doing. And but, but yeah, I think in the next two or three years that some of that information will start uh, hitting the presses. I will try to remember to put the link to reporting the animals in the show notes as well, but I did while you were talking. I uh, If you go to Indiana Deer News Podcast Facebook page, everybody that's listening, I went ahead and put report sick or wildlife dead animals, or uh, wa- sick or dead wildlife to the Indiana, and there's a link right there. You can just, it's a post that just went up today, um, so be sure to swing over there. 
while yeah and, and just to let folks know you know we don't like head out and check out every single dead animal but right. it's that reporting that folks are doing and it's those descriptions so like if somebody describes what sounds like an ehd deer then you know that that's what we're keying in on and and that goes into our data and our and our understanding and then when possible we'll try to get out maybe collect a sample to try to verify it but uh, but yeah all those reports uh, e- even if you don't get a call back or an email back i think they all get an automated email just to let folks know that we actually got it but that data is that data is being used and, and very important and all that goes into the deer report as well excellent which speaking of the deer report where are we at on that uh we are writing it uh analyzing data the uh the uh, so the after hunt survey that one that everybody gets right after they shoot their deer uh that information i've been looking at that most recently the the deer management survey the annual survey that comes out around the first of february um, like I've, I think I've already at this point compiled all that data and it's just a matter of sitting, sitting down and, and kind of plowing through those numbers. But the first thing I get together is all of the data related to population trends. Mm-hmm. And then that's what we use to set our annual county bonus antlerless quotas. And so that's kind of my highest priority right now because we have a series of steps we have to get through before it can get in the hunting guide, which is, you know, our ultimate goal in, in, in terms of our timing. And so, um, most of that I'm looking through right now. And then once I get done with those recommendations, then we start working heavily on trying to get the, uh, deer report out. Excellent. And those who are listening though, even right now on the interactive dashboard, you can go in and go county by county. You can see um, weapon type harvest. You can see antlered on, you know, antler lists. You can see uh, antlered button, button, uh, button buck harvest. You can kind of interact with all that. And then there's a link, Joe, down in the right hand corner that says deer management survey results. Is that mm-hmm. live? Is that comprehensive of everything that you guys have gathered so far? No. So for the for the deer herd management survey link and the deer management county data, that's updated uh, once per year. And so our goal is to try to get that updated sometime in April uh, because that, that's the data that comes in uh, through our survey and, and so forth. And so um, I get all that downloaded and get it basically prepared to go into the online database so then that folks can use that and look through it and see what's going on in their county. And basically those two pages replaces the PDF of the county data sheet. Yeah. Um, and, and hopefully, you know, the county data sheets would take a while to produce. The idea with these is that just whenever we get the data done, because the formatting is already done, all we have to do is then upload that data, and then it's immediately available. And you can also comb through it in different ways. You can run, you know, different comparisons. Um, you know, you can look at different types of mortality, and, and hopefully over the years, uh, we'll be able to add other things into it, like, you know, the 
the EHD or the mortality mortality data that we're seeing and and different things. And so the idea is that any data that we are using as biologists, we want to have out there so that the public and hunters and anybody who wants to look at it can can use it. I did have one question on that. So I love how when you click on the management survey, you can even filter the results by the DMUs, the deer management units, which mm-hmm. we've, we've discussed on in yep. the past, and you can see the map. On the harvest totals, you can't do the filtering by that. You only can do counties or statewide. Is that something that maybe is on the horizon? I'm just curious. Um, so, yeah, so the reason we do that with a lot of our survey data is because we often don't have enough data per county to look at some of the some of the questions and some of the information. So whenever we have the data down to the county, we we tend to stick with that. And so, uh, like for our uh, the the county data, the the deer mortality, like deer vehicle collisions and harvest and all that. Of course, we have all of that down to the county level, and yeah. so we don't really bother trying to combine it for the the deer management unit but when it comes to the survey data in some cases you know like uh benton county or somewhere like that we we may only have like two or three responses and so then that doesn't tell us much but if we combine it with all of those like counties which is the purpose of the deer management unit is just to kind of give us some counties that are similar for doing things like that, then we can look at those. Or like another another one that we use that for pretty commonly is the results of the archers index. Mm-hmm. And so we don't have a, people on the archers index to look at it on a per county level. But when we get to the deer management unit level, we can do that. And so that's just kind of a, a practical application for us to be able to do that. But at the in the back of the deer report, we do go ahead and print out those, uh, basically those county data sheets for all the DMUs for all those if folks do want to see those. But yeah, when it came to the da- the data dashboard, it wasn't really necessary for that, so we didn't yeah. we didn't bother doing that as the other two. No, I appreciate it. Um, before we move on to the second bullet point, can you think of anything else that we need to uh, share on? We're looking back on last season. Uh, not really. I mean, you know, like I said, you know, if, if folks are really interested in like a specific question, you know, I mean, all of those things are available in those three dashboards and, you know, you can kind of pick through it and answer different questions for yourself and, and, and look through it and, and make, you know, a whole variety of comparisons. So, but, you know, beyond those general trends, you know, it, it looked like to be a pretty average year. Yep. I would concur with everything I've seen. Um, the second thing I wanted to touch on for people is we did have Mariah on a while back, and we talked about these uh, proposals that were going through the process. And as he stressed, and, and I know you will as well, you know, this takes some time. Um, can you just give the listeners just kind of an update kind of where we're at on those? And I guess I can provide a uh, summary response. The proposals that were discussed were establishing a statewide antlerless bag limit. Um, they were... Uh, converting county bonus antlerless quotas to a county antlerless bag limits. Um, it was mm-hmm. restructuring the uh, making of uh, archery firearms and muzzleloader licenses antlered only. 
Um, and we, if you want to know the details of why the thought process behind these, if Joe doesn't touch on everything in detail, you can actually go back to um, the discussion with Mariah in episode 11. Anybody listening? Um, the fourth thing was to change bonus antlerless deer license to a comprehensive antlerless license. Um, there was also discussion of changing the deer license bundle to be two antlerless deer and one antlered. Um, presently, it's that or three antlerless deer. Um, and then the bundle crossbows into deer, li- deer archery license um, changed the check-in time to 24 hours and then also removed the minimum caliber restrictions on muzzleloaders. I guess first question, Joe, is offhand, did any of those things get dropped off the list or are they all kind of still being discussed? Uh, no, I think right now all of those are, are being discussed. Okay. Um, yeah, if, if folks remember from the deer management survey, we actually put, I think most of those and maybe even a couple of others uh, that we received from our got input process into the deer management survey to see, you know, what a, a, a bigger group of people might think of those um, those proposed changes. And so right now, you know, we're still trying to pull together all that data so that we can look at it. And uh, basically the results of that will be in the deer report. And then we'll use that to help make the decision on basically moving forward with those or dropping any of them or reconsidering them and so forth. But, you know, the idea is to try to understand as much about what hunters want to help guide these decisions. And if I remember right, there's probably absolutely no way these things will be implemented this year, given the process, but 2023 was kind of the first year that may be, but most likely even 2024. Is that still kind of? Yeah, I I mean, our rulemaking process just takes a while. And so I would say at the earliest, it would be 2024 before any of these would be complete. That's And that's what me and Mariah thought back when they were just at the initial stage. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. in discussion of that, so those are the new um, license structure discussions. I did have somebody uh, message me, and I tried to do a follow-up question, but he's got some license questions for you, Joe. Um, and I'll just I'll attempt to, I don't have any of the background information on this, but he wanted to know, does Joe think the deer license structure in Indiana causes an out-of-balance harvest of deer, causing most hunters to harvest only a buck and no does. Um, and I'll repeat that. And, then, and I tried to get a little bit of background knowledge again, but I, he, he, he did not respond. But he wants to know, Joe, do you think that the deer license structure in Indiana causes an out-of-balance harvest of deer, causing most hunters to harvest only a buck and no does? I'm just curious. Uh, but- what do you think? Yeah, no, I'd say, I, I would say no. Uh, I mean, if you look at our uh, data that we published in the deer report or even on these uh, dashboards, you can see we have a very balanced harvest, you know, mm-hmm. relatively speaking. Of course, there's always going to be fluctuations. But in, in general, we uh, have a very balanced sex ratio. We have a very balanced harvest. And, um, you know, yeah, I think if we had, I, I think the, the one buck rule probably helps us more than anything with keeping that, that balance. 
Mm-hmm. And you know, because most people from our surveys are interested in harvesting two deer. And in general, with a one buck rule, that means the other deer is going to be a doe. And that's typically what we see in our harvest. Offhand, Joe, what is our ratio uh, this last year, buck to doe harvesting? Uh, I was actually trying to look at it while we were talking about it. Here, yeah. Talking about it. And uh, I am not very good at doing two things at once. Uh, usually it's about equal. And I was just trying to look here. Oh, I guess the easiest way. Let me just click on antlerless because that would be all the sex type doe. There was 48,789 antlerless doe shot or harvested last year. So just shy of 50,000. So we're almost one to one. Yeah, a little it's, it's going to be a little bit more to bucks, which is which is fairly normal. Yep. You know, and if I remember right, our buck to doe ratio from the archers index is usually uh, like one point four does to 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 the bucks, and so that's you know usually reflected in our harvest as well. And so and and, and that's and that's actually uh, very well for looking at statewide numbers. It's a very good balance. Excellent. And I was looking back over the past few years, and we seem to be hovering around the same exact ratio for most yeah. of the most of the time. Um, yeah. he, he did do a follow up question. Um, it kind of goes on to that further, and he wants to know: Do you think the license structure pressures? I don't like that word that he uses, pressures, but whatever. Um, License structure pressures hunters to shoot a young buck instead of a doe for meat if they didn't have a chance to harvest a mature buck during their season. Um, Then he goes on to say, since the basic license structure only allows for one deer to be harvested. That last part there, Joe, I'm thinking there might be some misunderstanding of the license structure because that's only if you buy the firearms license alone and not a bundle, correct? Correct. Or we don't buy like, you know, the archery license or, or something like that. I mean, you know, to to harvest two deer, you, you, it, you have to buy two licenses or a bundle. And so, um, yeah, if, if somebody, if, if somebody only purchases a single license and that license is a firearm license and towards the end of firearm season, if they haven't harvested their deer, they may just shoot whatever. But it's actually a relatively small percentage of people that that do that. Uh, at, at least, you know, purchase only a single license. And um, uh, looking through our data, and you know, we've done this various ways for like looking at license and license use and so forth. Is you know, like I said from the survey, most people actually want to harvest two deer, and so usually they're going to be in possession of two licenses. And then the bundle license is by far the the most prevalent single license that's being used. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I don't I don't think so. Uh, you know, I think the one buck rule forces folks to be more selective. Like if you want to harvest a bigger buck, you know, you can't uh, like what we see in Michigan and some other areas that have uh, that allow two bucks. They'll go. A lot of folks will go out and shoot 
a buck just to make sure they get one, you know, in the bag. Mm-hmm. And then they might say, well, I'm going to go out and then hunt really hard for my big buck, my second buck. And then in, in those cases, a lot of times what they're doing is they're only about 10% of people are actually harvesting a second buck. And so, but that causes them to be less selective, or at least, you know, looking at the data, it appears that's what's going on. And so I think with the one buck rule, it's actually making hunters be more selective because they can only get one, one buck. They want to, you know, if they're interested in it being a trophy, they're going to just, you know, shoot that, you know, hold off and, and really hunt hard for that deer. And if they also want meat to go in the freezer, they might go ahead and shoot a doe or something like that. But there's a lot of people, I mean, we see this from our surveys as well. A lot of people, they, they don't care. They, yeah. they just want to shoot a deer and they don't care about the age. They don't care about the sex. You know, they might think to themselves, well, I'd rather shoot a buck to, you know, have more does out there. But, you know, those those people aren't the slightest interested in shooting a trophy. If a trophy walks up, I'm sure they would shoot it. But that's not their primary reason for hunting. And so they're not worried about age structure or anything like that. And they'll just, you know, they just want to shoot a deer. They want to go out and hunt and enjoy it and, and have a great time and, and be successful at, at harvesting a deer. And so... But on average, on balance, you know, our age structure over time has gotten older. And, you know, we can see that from our harvest data. We can see that uh, hunters have been really good about reporting in the after hunt surveys. And, and that's been super helpful. But in that, in that survey that you get after you shoot your deer, you can actually report the size of your deer, like how much it weighs, you can report on the, the size of the antlers, the the, the uh, age of the deer, and all of this biological information that helps go into us being able to, to track these things. And, and I can't say enough about people participating in both of our surveys to, to answer these questions to help guide deer management. But but yeah, no, I don't I don't think that the license structure is actually having that effect and the final question of this gentleman and we kind of touched on it was he wanted to know what the ideal harvest percentage is for buck versus doe you know we kind of touched that it's almost 60 40 maybe a little bit higher maybe it's 55 45 percent as far as not quite one-to-one in indiana what what is the quote-unquote perfect uh ratio that you're you're hunting for and does it depend joe on what the overall management goals of the state is at that time. Cause you know, at one time we were in a reduction mode versus maybe growth versus maybe stabilize. Yeah. So, you know, from, from, from a, from a state perspective, we want to maintain a deer population that is self-sustaining as best as we can reflects what the hunters want on average, you know, cause everything we're doing is, is based on averages. And but that the most important thing is that self-sustaining population that I would say is not causing too too many problems because mm-hmm. you know once we get into those periods where uh, populations get really high, then lots of people get really upset about it, and and uh, you know and then that's when we go into these periods of needing to reduce our deer population. But you know right now you know, what we're seeing seems to be a good balance between having uh, a healthy deer herd and, you know, not having 
a lot of complaints about damage, or at least if we we are, we've got we've got things to address them. We've got management options to to try to address some of these some of these things. And so, and so on average, I'm looking at what's going on in our statewide deer population. It looks great. I mean, you know, we have a relatively balanced herd, and we have a relatively balanced harvest. And so, you know, looking at that. That that's good from a statewide perspective. If folks are interested in fine tuning what is going on on their property or on groups of properties, that's when people start looking at that more localized population. And so they might look and see that, okay, I have a sex ratio of, um, you know, let's say you know, 1.8 does to every every buck, and I want to get that down. Or, you know, let's say a group of landowners and hunters are really interested in trophy deer management. Then in trophy deer management, you actually want a smaller population because you want to provide as much food, as much forage for the animals that you have on the landscape so they can grow to their maximum capacity and so they might go in there and harvest more than say two on average two does per person you know to try to get the population a little smaller and then do things like tweak the the age structure of their deer but most of that sort of intricate management really occurs at that local level and doesn't really occur at at the state level you know what i'm looking for is a good you know, healthy herd that can recover from things like EHD, that people have hunting opportunities and then do have the opportunity to, to tweak and, and, you know, you know, if they want, if they're trying to, you know, increase size, maybe put out food plots and increase habitat and, and do all these things that happen at a local scale, but just making sure that population is there. So, so all those different things can occur for the folks who are interested in that. And for the folks who just want to go hunt a deer and, you know, shoot a deer and put a couple of deer in the freezers, you know, we want to make sure we're serving that as well. And you actually touched on a direction of a question that I had, and a few people kind of asked me. It was seemed odd that the one uh, survey, it did touch on trying to gauge um, hunter interest in management and is trophy hunting, you know, something that people want or people uh, think about more so. That split, Joe, how are you seeing the landscape of hunters respond to you in that? It, is trophy hunting ascending in priorities for hunters? Is it kind of staying the same? Is the majority or vast majority still, that's not really something they're concerned with? Have you noticed anything in that? Yeah, and so we've asked questions about trophy management on and off again throughout the years. And so if you look all the way back to some of our surveys that we were doing in the 90s, mm-hmm. we've asked those questions and, and we asked it, I think. Uh, I can't remember if it was 2000, maybe 2000, the 2017 survey. But um, really, and, and, and so the reason we put this question on the uh, survey this year is because we had some folks in the got input process, which is where we ask about, you know, what what changes would you like to see in wildlife, fish, fish and wildlife management in general. This isn't, you know, specific to deer. Yeah. And because there were several 
people on their own independently said, we want trophy deer management in Indiana. That's not what they said. They said, you know, let's increase the size of the buck. Sure. Let's increase the age structure. You know, all those characteristics of trophy deer management. So I'm just kind of grouping that together. Yeah. And so because of that, I put those questions about that in the survey just to say, okay, well, it had, has it significantly increased? Is that what hunters really want? And what we're finding is about the same number as we've seen in those other surveys. Uh, it, it really hasn't changed over time. Interesting. And so, yeah, and support for that is is still at that. What I want to say is, and just a rough number, like in that kind of forty percent range. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of and a lot of folks really just want to go out and and shoot a deer and have a good experience you know, shooting a deer. And so in, in this particular survey, we asked some additional questions about the, the consequences of a trophy deer management, you know, uh, uh, style. And one of those is, you know, well, you might get fined if you shoot a deer that's too low. And so, you mm-hmm. know, what did, what did folks think about that? Or, you know, the fact that, you know, if, if we become a quote trophy deer management state, you know, what does that mean for like land prices and and those kinds of things? And so, you know, a a lot of those consequences are not very attractive to people. And, you know, and a lot of people are still telling us they just like to go and hunt deer. They want to go out and shoot a deer. You know, I'm sure I mean myself included, if a big deer walks by, I'm going to shoot it versus a small buck. Sure. But, you know, the, the idea of, you know, trying to restructure the entire system to account for those things doesn't seem to be uh, attractive enough to enough people to, you know, warrant that change. And so, but again, you know, that's why we keep asking these questions is, you know, to tr- really try to understand what hunters are interested in. And again, you know, we go from the averages that, that give us our idea and, and folks responding and answering these surveys. I mean, it's just absolutely critical for what I do because, you know, when I'm looking at making recommendations for management changes, which is mm-hmm. what biologists do, we make recommendations. We don't, you know, set regulations. Yep. That's what our natural resources commission does. Um, but it really helps to understand the, the pulse of what people want, what they're seeing. And so I, I can't just state how critical it is for hunters to keep engaging with these surveys. And I know sometimes they can be a little long. They can take, you know, sometimes 15 or 20 minutes. But the that time really pays off because then we can really see what people what our hunters and, and even our non-hunters, you know, really want to see from, from their deer population. Excellent. I appreciate the answer and how thorough it was. I did have a, a gentleman, Greg was his name, and he wrote two questions. And they kind of tied into the trophy <laughs> hunting type thing. And they're more or less, he was like, let Joe know I just want his thoughts. He doesn't need to give me his state biologist opinion of this because you may not be able to uh, quantify <laughs> yeah. this. So I I don't know. He just told me to pass that along. Um And he did want me to also say thank you. He appreciates everything you guys are doing. He said, ask Joe, how likely is the average deer hunter to kill a mature deer? And he said three and a half years or older. Um, Season wide, Mm -hmm. be it male or female, 
Um, and he kind of said if he wants just a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being very likely. In the state of Indiana, how likely do you feel a hunter is on a harvest of harvesting a male or female deer um, that's, that is that old? Do you guys have any idea? Yeah, so uh, that information is actually in our deer report. And um, that comes yep. from um, – and, and uh, you know, and I'm, I'm a data guy, you know, and so I always go back to our deer report and our – you know, uh, various information we have. And that's always, that, that, that information he's asking about is always in the section about the after hunt survey. Yep. And we have graphs in there about the age of deer that hunters are actually shooting. Okay. And so, um, and I'm, of course, I'm looking at the last year's report, the, the 2020 report, which um, uh, looking at that, you know, our most common deer that, that hunters are shooting are two-and-a-half-year-old deer. Mm-hmm. And and the same thing for does Does actually, it's, other than it looks like one blip there, uh, mostly they're shooting a year-and-a-half-old, and then slightly less than that is two-and-a-half, and then it, you know, of course, goes down three-and-a-half, four-and-a-half, and five-and-a-half. Um, but we, ha- we do have relatively speaking an older age structure and if hunters are patient and they're and they're being very selective they have a good chance of of shooting an older deer if if that's you know what what they want to do yeah and so uh i can't give you know exact percentages but you know if, if anybody's interested in this what I'm doing is I'm looking at page 90 on our 2020 Indiana Whitetail Deer Report, and it's got the age of bucks, age of does, um, and then on, I think, the page before it, 89 has a basically the same sort of breakdown, but we've even got it by those deer management units. Yeah, I was going to say. Again, that's yep. we have those. Yep, yep, it's but, broken down uh, by the nine, there's nine DMUs in the state, and it's got them all broken out there. Yeah, and so you can see, like, even in the area that you're hunting in, what those percentages of the harvest there are. Of course, you know, this is the harvest. This is the, the population itself. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if we assume that it's at least somewhat reflective of the population, then those those older deer are out there. And then that's where it comes down to, okay, you know, if, if you are working with landowners, or a group of landowners can work together, that's where you can then start tweaking these through these cooperatives. I don't know if Mariah talked about that when, whenever yeah. he was on, but yeah, deer management cooperatives are some of the greatest things ever because that really gives those landowners and, and hunters in, in combination a chance to really tweak what they are seeing on the landscape and their population size and the age structure and all those things. And so, you know, if, if you ever have that opportunity, that's a great thing to become involved with. And, you know, and it can be very informal and just, you know, get together with a group of people, a group of landowners and, and decide, like, you know, what management objectives that you have and then, you know, work, work to achieve that. But in general, you know, for statewide numbers and, you know, just across the landscape, these, these two sets of figures will give you a really good idea of, Uh, what you can harvest out there and i'll let those who are listening go to it but there are two there's there's one who stand there's one deer management unit that really stands out for four and a half year old bucks 
And there's one that kind of separates itself for five and a half plus, but I'll let the listeners go check mm-hmm. that out so I don't get accused of <laughs> encouraging people to get into other people's areas to hunt. But there's two very separated DMUs, honestly. Um, I was kind of surprised to yeah. see that. There's a second question that Greg had, and it kind of ties into that, and I don't believe this one. I knew the first one was going to be in the the after hunt survey and in the deer summary, but this one I don't know if there is. He asks... Um, how do we rate, meaning Indiana, as a state, in Joe's opinion, as a trophy state on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the highest, and a trophy being a 130-inch deer or higher? I, You don't track by scores, correct? I don't think we do. No, um, I'm actually going to try to start including some of that information in there uh, because Boone and Crockett does track that. Of course, you know, they're tracking Boone and Crockett-sized deer. Yeah. And so I don't know about the 130, but uh, I was looking at some information just the other day, and I'm going to try to, again, have this in the deer report. I don't know if I'll get it in there this year, but I'm going to try my best. But uh, if you look at Indiana on a per-square-mile basis, Okay, and, and that's the key because you got to remember, Indiana is relatively small compared with its Midwestern neighbors. Mm-hmm. And if I remember right, we were ranked number three um, for the number of Boone and Crockett deer that Indiana is harvesting on a per square mile basis. Which is pretty so excellent. Pretty, yeah, pretty dang good. I'm going to. While we're sitting here, I'm just going to see if I can happen to find this um, this information that I was looked at looking at the other day because somebody actually asked this um, because they were interested again in trophy deer management and they had provided uh, a comment about you know what what can we do because their impression was that Indiana was very very low uh, for you know, the number of Boone and Crockett deer. And so oh. I actually looked up the, uh, the data and, and it talked about how, um, you know, Indiana was um, number three on a per square mile basis. Now, yeah. if you just look at it on a statewide basis, yeah, we're going to be, we're going to be lower and we're not going to be anywhere near those bigger states. But if you, um, you know, take, take into account the size of Indiana, then that, that really helps things. And what would you say, Joe, what would you say are some of the biggest factors that allow Indiana to do that? I mean, I think as a, as a general rule overall, our state, we're pretty good when it comes to habitat, especially down towards the south. There's a lot of good habitat. And even in the north, we've got that mixed agricultural type thing. I've always thought that plays a factor. Going to the one buck rule, I know I'm old enough to remember hunting prior to the one buck rule and then post. Um, I think that's a factor in certain areas. I think hunter mentalities have kind of changed over the years, the deer co-ops. Would you say those are all factors? And is there anything else you think that kind of helps boost Indiana to being a prime state for a patient hunter to shoot a mature trophy deer in their opinion? Yeah. So, uh, you know, all the things that you mentioned uh, are definitely factors and, you know, Deer, you know, one of the biggest drivers of deer is quality of habitat, okay? And, you know, quality is all those things that, you know, it's cover and it's food and it's security. All those things factor into it. And when it comes to producing large deer, it's that, it's that forage quality 
that's out there. And Indiana has so much uh, interspersed uh, forage, which if you're a farmer, you don't like to think about that because right. you know if, if you're a, if, if you uh, farm row crops, that's that's not what you want or deer coming out of the woods and eating your crop. But it's but it's that thing right there that you know deer are able to get out of the woods forage uh, especially on beans because that's that's the forage that's really going to produce those antlers while they're growing and so it's, it's, it's that food produced during the growing season and if you look at places like northern indiana so it, it's interesting because you know i talked about looking at boone and crockett scores on a per square mile basis but then once you get within indiana okay our largest number of Boone and Crockett deer comes from, if I remember, I listened to this a few years ago. I want to say like over towards Park in Putnam County or, or one of those over there. Yep. But if you look at it on a per square mile of deer habitat, it's actually those counties that have lower amounts of deer habitat but are completely surrounded by these massive agricultural fields that tend to produce a, a larger proportion of those bigger deer. And if you think about it, that's because they essentially have a sea of food to forage on, even though there's only a small amount of habitat. So, you know, that, that cover component of that habitat is often what's limiting in those areas. But, you know, if you can find somewhere to hunt in those areas, a lot of times you have a greater chance of harvesting one of these, one of these large deer. So, you know, you, you just have to take all those things into consideration. But, but uh, by far, I think it's the quality of the the forage that the deer are are taking advantage of, and it's not necessarily the natural forage. It's that uh, food that's it's, it's farm crops. It's not food that's being planted for the deer. It's, it's, it's you know, it's unfortunately these farm crops. But that's a lot of times that's what makes our deer uh, very large, and that's true throughout the Midwest. And yeah. so that's why a lot of times you have these Midwestern deer that are so large is because they are able to take advantage of such high quality forage. Yeah. Well, we've touched on it a lot and we've talked about deer numbers and populations. And that kind of made me think of the integrated deer study that's been going on. Um, what, because I know one of the goals of that, if I remember right, and we've discussed with, uh, I forget which gentleman was on the podcast offhand. Um, I apologize right now, but uh, they were going to try to estimate the population of the deer herd, correct? Mm -hmm. That's right. Have they come to a conclusion yet? Oh, no. 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 So, like, what, yeah, so what he was doing was he was trying to find cost-effective methods that yeah. would work for Indiana, okay? Uh, there's, a, there's a relationship between being able to estimate the deer population and the accuracy, so you can use very inexpensive methods to estimate the deer population, but they tend to have a lot of error. So that's why, so, so anytime, and, and this will be true in the future, so anytime we're talking about the size of deer herd, let's just say that, you know, you're looking at a state and, and their deer herd size is 2 million deer. You're going to see something like 2 million deer plus or minus 100,000 deer, okay? That's, that's the error rate that I'm talking about. And uh, the more 
typically or traditionally, the more expensive the method, the smaller that error rate might be. And so, for instance, if you spend $50,000 to estimate the deer population, you might be able to shrink that error rate down to, let's say, 50,000 deer plus or minus. Okay. If you use a method that's very inexpensive, like say that costs you about $10,000 overall, it might, on that 2 million deer estimate, it might bring it out to plus or minus 200,000 deer. And then you get down to methods that are just so error prone and inaccurate, even though they're very inexpensive to use, that it they just don't really serve a, a good purpose. And so what he was trying to do was really trying to, you know, focus in on the cost effectiveness, which includes that cost and then how good are these methods for estimating deer populations. And at least so far, what his study is uh, appearing to show is that aerial flights, so, you know, having, having somebody go up in a fixed wing aircraft with a um, plane mounted camera has the greatest promise of being the most cost-effective method. And traditionally, when biologists have counted deer using aerial methods, the biologist and possibly even a spotter or two will also go up with a biologist. So you've got three or four people in an airplane for the length of time that it costs to do that flight. And so you can see now how that's starting to get very expensive. Yeah. And then you're also relying on those people to be hyper-focused you know they're they're flying along they're watching they're counting deer i mean and you've really got to, i've done this on some uh waterfowl flights um uh, in utah when i was working there and just that to, to, to help out just to be an extra set of eyes and depending on like how much experience that person has i mean it can it can be very difficult and then that's assuming you don't get air sick and you yeah. know your, your vision starts whirling around and, and those types of things but with this camera that's mounted on the on the airplane, the idea is, okay, it's just a pilot, the pilot and the camera. And so then, then they get back and they hand over that, uh, basically that data. And then the biologist can sit there and, and the cameras that, were, that, that they were using actually pairs, you know, traditional, like a red, green, blue, like visual camera data with thermal data. Oh, and excellent. so then, so now you can see, oh, look, there's a bright spot. And you look over here and it's like, oh, that's nothing. It's just reflection off of a rock. Okay. And then you see another bright spot, it's a deer. And so by pairing those together, you can actually improve the accuracy of the technique. And then if the person who's doing this is getting tired, uh, it's interesting because he was telling me when he was doing this, like sometimes they didn't get motion sickness from just focusing so heavily on the screen. But they can pause. They can pause it and take a break, and so then the accuracy goes up, and you're dealing with one person who doesn't have to be ready. So, like you know, if the pilot goes, "Man, it's a great day. There's snow on the ground. Let's get up and count these deer," and this person is already committed to a meeting, they can't go, and so then it gets put off, or maybe you're at a subpar day. But with this technique, the pilot, the the pilot can just go, and then, you know, the biologist, it's like, okay, well, I got a day free. I'm going to go through some of the data. So we're, we're hoping that that's going to be a, a method that we can use to really develop um, 
you know, population level data, which we haven't had before, and primarily because it is, it is very expensive. I mean, it's very expensive to do that. And in the end, you know, you have to, you know, look at all the other things you have to do, all the public land we manage, you know, you know, everything else we're involved with and say, okay, you know, it, you know, how important is it to have that when we've got all this other trend data that we use to, to monitor populations? And so, but if we can find a cost-effective method for doing that, then that might be something that we can actually put in our toolbox to be able to, to help manage deer. But we'll just have to wait and see. There's, uh, they're, they're still writing up all this, and so they've got about a year left to, you know, finish all the writing and, and, and give that to us so we can have an idea, of, you know, and, and make a decision going forward. Excellent. It was Pat McGovern for those listening. If you want to listen to the podcast with Pat McGovern from the Integrated Deer Study, it is uh, episode 10 where they sat down and, and talked to me in length about that. So it was very interesting. Um, thank you for that, Joe. Uh, we'll move right along on topics because I know we're right on about an hour already and I, we each got days we got to get on with. The uh, CWD status update, I do get a email or a message every now and then, um, people curious. Uh, still nothing on the landscape, correct? That we That's know correct. of. That's correct. We still have yeah, we still haven't detected it, okay. which is the only way we can look at it to say, yeah, we haven't, we haven't detected it, we haven't found it. And uh, Mariah kind of explained the kind of the approach that we're taking, but has anything changed as far as how we're going to respond if it is found? Uh, no, I mean okay. we really haven't. You know, we're, we're still working on you know getting that plan updated, and eventually that'll be available for folks to look at. Uh, it's just a matter of time. You know, yep. we just you know. Uh, the, the the setting the quotas and the deer pop the deer report and everything take priority then we come back to some of these other things like you know trying to get the cwd plan written up but yeah uh, nothing that mariah worked on when he was here all the the plans that we've outlined for cwd that's all still exactly the same we're we're still i think we're very happy with kind of what we settled on with that Excellent. And uh, folks can go back and listen to the final episode with Mariah, which was episode 11, where we talked about that as well. Um, let's see, the afterhunt surveys we've kind of already touched on, um, and folks can look forward <laughs> yep. to reading the summaries of that in the deer management survey. Um, proactively looking towards next season, uh, is there any changes that might be coming down the pipe? Uh, it sounds like most of the changes are more long-term, but is there anything that deer hunters listening need to be aware of or keep an eye out for before this next season? No, I mean, not in terms of, like, harvest regulations or anything like that. You know, we'll look at the setting the quotas here pretty soon and, and get that done, but that's that normal yearly process. But, you know, for, for next year, we're not predicting you know, any significant changes. So yeah, it should be very similar to what it's been this year and last couple of years. I did have one question about the surveys. Are we seeing any kind of measurable uptick in input? You've, you've kind of hinted that it might be better than it's been in years past because you've been very appreciative and you've said that numerous times. Have, are we seeing a slightly higher percentage of people participating? So we, we have had a slow increase Good. in the number of people participating in the after hunt survey, okay. which is, is to me a very critical one because that's a lot of that biological data. So for folks who, who don't know the, that the survey that you get right after you harvest your deer. So you get an email that says, Hey, this is your confirmation number. 
and at the bottom of it, there will be a link so you can click on that and, and participate in the survey. And we ask things like, how long did it take to shoot your deer? How many deer did you see while you're were, were trying to harvest the deer? So, you know, somebody might say, well, it took me 50 hours to harvest the deer, but they passed up on 12 deer because none of them were big enough. You know, things like that. And another index of the population is, you know, what, what we call catch per unit effort. You know, so how much time did you put in to trying to get a deer? And, and if, of course, if it takes longer to harvest a deer, then that might mean maybe the deer population is getting a little smaller. But we ask these other questions because, well, I saw 15 deer while I was waiting for that one. And so, you know, we, we take all these things into consideration, but it's, it's questions like that and the age and, you know, what did you think of your hunt? And, and, and that, that really helps get some of that biological information that we don't have any longer because we're not doing the physical check station. So those are really important, and we have seen an increase in those. Our deer management survey seems to have kind of plateaued, and we don't really have much of an increase in that. We'd love to have more hunters participating in that one as well, but we do have a always have a good response for that one. We, on average, if I remember right, it's around twenty to twenty-two thousand uh, hunters respond to that deer management survey, the one that usually goes out in February. And so uh, that's, again, always appreciated because, again, what we're trying to do is understand what hunters are seeing, what they want from the deer population, and incorporate that into management. Yeah. I, I don't remember who it was. It might have been Bronson Strickland or Steve Damaris brought up. You were touching on effort and how long it took a hunter to uh, get it. Somebody said, I, I know it was a deer biologist, said that it's the picky hunters that help us estimate the age of the deer herd, and it's the non-picky hunters that help us <laughs> estimate the population of the deer herd. That sounds like a Bronson's <laughs> it might have it i listen to those guys every chance i get so there's a really good chance and i was like you know it's a very simple way of uh but it's kind of true you know the the, yeah, the guys yeah. who are out there patiently waiting for a mature buck they help you guys capture a uh, a data or an index that you know the non-picky hunters that just want to go out there have fun fill the freezer shoot a deer they really help you capture okay how's the overall pulse of the deer herd number wise doing because they're not as picky. It's just an excellent way to kind of put that effort measure. Because some people wonder why you even care. Why do you care about the effort? And it really is a, a great index for you guys to use when, when mm -hmm. trying to estimate the deer herd. Yeah, it is. It is. And, and we actually are doing a, a, a fourth survey now. This is a random survey. It's only of 10,000 hunters a year. So mm -hmm. you may or may not get this survey. But it is specifically designed to answer that question. So the after hunt survey is great, but that's only for successful hunters. Okay. And because if you don't harvest a deer, you never see that survey. But this other one we're doing is during the firearm season. And it's, it's, it's geared to look at effort during the firearm season. It's basically modeled after the same one Wisconsin uses and has used for, for decades. And so, uh, but that one gets randomly sent to 10,000 hunters a year 
and basically it's asking them for their efforts during firearm season because again you know in archery season you've got a lot like you're just talking about a lot more picky hunters yeah. who are looking for just that right gear and then in firearm season you know a lot of folks that's when they just want to go out and they want to harvest their deer maybe they want to spend you know two to four days hunting and they're going to do it then maybe they're less picky and but we're we're running another survey so again you know our the idea is we don't have any perfect data sources yeah for knowing exactly how big the deer population is and so even, even if we start working to measure the deer population there is error in there you know and we know that but what we can do is we can combine several of these data sources so we can, you know, look and see what hunters are observing. You know, we can look at the catch per unit effort and how that's going up. We can, you know, look at all of these different trends and combine them together. And that's what ultimately gives us a good idea of which direction the deer population is going. We're never going to know exactly how many deer we have out there. Yeah. But what's important from a management standpoint is, is there a consistent apparent decline in the population or is it going up or is it stable? Well, excellent. This has been a, a, a wonderful discussion and I know everybody listening is highly appreciative of it. Um, I'll be sure to put in the show notes, show notes, everything that we kind of touched on links to the uh, dashboards that they can go in, interact with. Um, stay tuned for the deer summary update when that's released. Um, I don't believe I have anything additional. Joe, are you good or do you have anything last minute to share with people? Nope, I'm good. Uh, you know, again, responding to those surveys are, you know, some of the, the biggest help that, you know, folks can, can provide. And we're always uh, appreciative when, when folks are responding to those. You heard it here, folks. Do the surveys. It's the best way to communicate with them and give them as much data as possible. So we want to thank Joe again for coming on uh, this episode of the Indiana Deer News Podcast, and we look forward to the next time we get to sit down with him or somebody else at the uh, Indiana Department of Natural Resources. Thanks again, Joe. Hey, you're welcome. It was good talking to you.